Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, The Oncogenic Significance and Promise of HER3 in Pharmacotherapy, is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Novus Medical Education. And this activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to our webcast titled The Oncogenic Significance and Promise of HER3 in Pharmacotherapy. My name is Dr. Helena Yu. I'm an associate attending uh, and medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Mackenzie Evangelist. Dr. Evangelist, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Dr. Mackenzie Evangelist, and I am a medical oncologist with New York Oncology Hematology in Albany, New York, and I'm a professor at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York. Great. It's a, a pleasure to have someone that we uh, share patients with often uh, to, you know, to work together on this. Um, so in this webcast, we'll discuss the function and role of HER3 in emerging treatment options for patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Before we get started, let's quickly review our learning objectives. So upon conclusion of this educational activity, participants should be able to recognize the role of HER3 in oncogenesis and progression in non-small cell lung cancer and understand the rationale for HER3-targeted therapeutics, identify HER3-targeted therapies currently in development for the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer and their role in therapy, and recognize potential adverse effects associated with HER3-targeted therapies. Uh, now we'll start the discussion with a case of Dr. Evangelis. Great. So this is a 55-year-old uh, Caucasian female patient of mine who's a non-smoker, and she presented in December 2017 with an enlarging right neck mass. Imaging revealed a substantial right upper lobe mass with extensive thoracic adenopathy and pretty substantial supraclavicular and cervical lymphadenopathy. Staging studies showed a solitary metastatic lesion to her right posterior fourth rib, and her brain MRI was negative for CNS metastases. So we biopsied um, her lymph node, and that showed a poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma of lung origin. We uh, received biomarker testing, which showed a high PDL1 of 100%, uh, but did identify an EGFR driver mutation, uh, exon 21 l 858 r alteration. And so she was started on first-line osimertinib. Great. So speaking of biomarkers and biomarker testing, uh, for patients with non-small cell lung cancer, uh, the NCCN guidelines do recommend um, complete biomarker testing. There are actually nine actionable driver uh, mutations that have uh, FDA-approved targeted therapies. Um, and so, you know, I think that it really is important. And, and the best way, in, in my opinion, to do it is using a larger panel that has all of these mutations uh, within the assay. Um, and I, I really do think that molecular therapies have revolutionized how we treat uh, uh, non-small cell lung cancer with the majority of patients with these driver mutations getting targeted therapy in the first-line setting. Absolutely. And, and we've really learned over the last decade why this matters. It's really changed the landscape for lung cancer treatment. But unfortunately, we only see about half of patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer and a driver mutation actually receive uh, biomarker-directed therapy. And uh, despite having nine FDA-approved um, lines of therapy for um, alter altered um, non-small cell lung cancer. And so there's been studies that show that if patients get their uh, 
um, biomarker-directed therapy up front, they do better, they, sur- they have longer survival. And we know from many studies that even if patients have started a good first-line treatment, they don't always go on to second-line treatment. And here you can see uh, a breakdown of some of the biomarker testing that was done. Um, NCCN recommends the targeted therapy in 48%, but uh, over 50% of patients received other therapies. And, you know, this case was important. We saw 100% PDL1, but we knew it was the right thing to do to get her on targeted therapy. Absolutely. I think PDL1 isn't enough. We have to wait for those uh, genomic biomarkers. So I guess that brings us to a good question. What, do you, what is reflexive at your site, and, and how do you go about doing molecular testing on your kind of new visits that you see? Yeah. Um, right now, we do have reflexive testing in that our surgeons will order it in operable um, settings. But in advanced settings, it's still up to the medical oncologist. Uh, you know, tissue remains uh, an issue. We need to have enough tissue uh, acquired, not only for um, treatment, but also for enrollment on clinical trials. And so uh, our pathologists don't do reflexive testing. It would be nice if we had uh, that ability, but we're still able to do comprehensive testing with NGS, and, and so that's standard of care for us. And how long does it take for you to get those results back for most of your patients? So the turnaround time is usually a few weeks, uh, but you know we really have been trying as a multidisciplinary group to communicate early so that we can get the testing ordered even before they see the medical oncologist. And then if possible, you try to wait for those results before you, you implement a treatment plan. Absolutely. I think with this case, she actually was admitted with worsening lymphadenopathy, and it was really difficult to wait, but uh, we were able to get the results back. But had we not, then we will consider doing chemotherapy without immunotherapy until we get those results back. Absolutely. That's my same practice. And I think um, similar to you, we do, um, actually, we do EGFR and ALK as reflexive testing and KRS as well. Um, but we do have to send off for, um, you know, the full NGS panel. But I think liquid biopsies have helped there as well, right? Because I think the turnaround time there is more like two weeks. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I send both, or if I want the results right away, I prioritize that liquid biopsy testing. I've, I've, I've started doing that. And I think payers are starting to appreciate how important this testing right. is. And um, oncologists are starting to realize that, you know, this is the right thing to do. Right. So And reimbursement's not an issue. Yeah, typically. yeah. I think the liquid is also um, a benefit for the patients who are really symptomatic mm-hmm. or hospitalized and, and their tissue is going to be delayed before it's sent out. Absolutely. So what happened with your patient? So she was started on osimertinib, and she had a really dramatic response um, because she had the lymph nodes. It, at two weeks, I was able to see a response, which was pretty remarkable. So she had an excellent partial response to therapy. She did have some toxicity, which we don't see a lot with osimertinib, some dysgeusia and some loss of appetite, but that responded well to dose reduction, and she was able to stay on the drug. She did, uh, about 10 months on, have uh, interval progression. Her Mm -hmm. primary tumor started to grow. We restaged her with a PET scan, and what was remarkable is that her lymphadenopathy had responded so beautifully to the osimertinib, Mm -hmm. but she did have some residual uptake in her primary, and so we chose to keep her on osimertinib, but to pursue local treatment with stereotactic body radiotherapy. That's great. And then it looks like you did biopsy her, um, and what did you guys find on genomic testing? Yeah, so we did a comprehensive NGS panel, and it did show that she had her original... um, uh, EGFR mutations plus an acquired on-target EGFR mutation. 
Um, we didn't see any transformation to small cells, so no histologic transformation. And you can see a number of alterations they identified. Great. So in terms of EGFR-acquired resistance, I think the, it, it's interesting as we get better and better EGFR inhibitors, the spectrum of resistance mechanisms have changed. Um, I, you know, I would say that with first-line osimertinib, we are seeing less on-target resistance as, as we've kind of gotten to a better on-target inhibitor and more of that off-target resistance and more of that histologic transformation that you mentioned. I think one thing that's important to highlight is that tumor tissue biopsies are the only way that we can identify histologic transformation. So if the suspicion is there, um, it's something that you can only see on, on a, a tumor tissue biopsy. Um, and then I think the other thing to, to point out is when we were dealing with earlier generation EGFR inhibitors, T790M as an acquired mutation really dominated. But here, things are very diverse, and a lot of the resistance mechanisms are really not seen on these NGS panels. And so finding a therapy that transcends these different mechanisms of resistance will be important in the future. And as, as we both mentioned, I think at progression, similar to at diagnosis, um, cancer care guidelines do recommend a repeat biopsy. I often send off both plasma and uh, tumor tissue biopsy. As you had mentioned, some yeah. of the clinical trials require the tumor tissue, but we want results uh, more quickly sometimes with the plasma testing. Um, and that... You know, the majority of patients, about half, we don't find anything identified uh, identifiable on the NGS testing. Um, and that brings us to HER3 um, and the HER3 protein as a potential mechanism of resistance. So I guess in your practice, w when do you rebiopsy um, and how do you act on those results and, and how do you treat your patients after osimertinib progression? Yeah, so uh, I also um, will consider tissue biopsy if there's an accessible lesion or if a patient has a rapidly progressive lesion, then I'm starting to think about histologic transformation. And I will also do a liquid biopsy just because I have control over it and there's a, good, a quick turnaround. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then I would say in terms of treatment, you know, after that biopsy, I'd like to do that with sort of when patients are progressing, but hopefully are not so symptomatic that I need to start treatment right away. Mm -hmm. um, I think obviously clinical trials are always great to consider if patients are eligible or you have access to them. Um, there are certain mechanisms or res resistance where we do see some case reports with potential yeah. um, uh, combination therapies where we can add targeted therapies to osimertinib, but really as of now, no approved targeted therapies after progression on osimertinib. And so that really brings us to HER3 and its relevance in the acquired resistance setting. So um, there is the EGFR family of receptors. We know EGFR and we also know HER2, um, but there are two other HER receptors, HER3 and HER4. Um, HER3 in and of itself has actually pretty limited intrinsic kinase activity. It's not a driver mutation. Um, and really it doesn't, um, you know, HER3 signaling doesn't, itself um, promote oncogenesis, but it often heterodimerizes with other HER family members, particularly HER2 and EGFR, which should both sound familiar because those are driver uh, mutation genes that have driver alterations uh, in non-small cell lung cancer. And so in terms of HER3 and oncogenesis, we actually see HER3 overexpression in a number of cancers, including breast, lung, and colon cancer. Um, it is, as I mentioned, not oncogenic in and of itself, whether there's a driver muta uh, mutation or overexpression, um, but it does promote oncogenic activity um, through primarily PI3K and MAPK signaling. And then interestingly, HER3 overexpression is associated with poor prognosis. 
Um, and so when it is seen in patients that have driver mutations, um, there are, are shorter time to uh, disease progression and sor shorter survival when we see HER3 expression. And then, you know, thinking about as new HER3 treatments are being developed, the real question is whether um, HER3 expression or the degree of expression will be a biomarker for those treatments. And then specifically looking at HER3 in non-small cell lung cancer, actually the vast majority of tumors do express HER3. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, um, there is uh, enhanced expression in EGFR mutant lung cancer, um, and about a quarter of non-small cell lung cancers have very high HER3 expression, so IHC scores of 3+. And then again, even in lung cancer, there's decreased time to uh, metastatic progression or recurrence and shorter time of relapse-free survival when we see HER3 expression in lung cancer. Um, and then I think relevant to this talk and, and this discussion, we do think that HER3 expression has a role in resistance to EGFR TKI therapy. Um, we can see in particular in the acquired resistance setting um, overexpression of HER3. And now maybe to talk about antibody drug conjugates. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen, you know, over the last decade, the development past chemotherapy to oral targeted therapies and immunotherapy, and now we have another class of um, uh, therapeutics, the antibody drug conjugates. And, um, you know, we're starting to see more and more of these across a number of tumor types. Mm -hmm. um, basically, what they are is a way of distributing chemotherapy in a targeted fashion. So we look at a monoclonal antibody that is um, linked to a chemotherapy through a linker. And there are a number of different cytotoxic agents that are used in these um, antibody drug conjugates. But it allows us to, to more focus deliver the um, drug, and that allows us to limit toxicity and hopefully increase the um, therapeutic um, index at the drug, at the tumor type. I'm really excited about this class of drug. I think that sort of all at once there's a bunch of different novel um, ADCs that we're looking at, and, and I do think it has promise because it, it is, as you said, Mackenzie, I think a hybrid between chemotherapy and targeted therapy, um, and so has a lot of appeal uh, for our patients. So speaking of ADCs, do you have any experience using any of the different ADCs that we have available in non-small cell lung cancer? Yeah, over the last year, I've had some experience with trastuzumab durextecan uh, after it became approved for patients with uh, advanced HER2-mutated non-small cell lung cancer in the second-line setting. And so I've had a little bit of experience with that. Um, uh, and uh, back in the day, I treated patients with trastuzumab who had breast cancer, so I had some familiarity with some of the toxicities that go along with targeting HER2. So uh, as you mentioned, trastuzumab derixtecan is the only approved ADC uh, that it, you know, for, for use in non-small cell lung cancer, but one that I'm really excited about is petrotimab derixtecan, which is a HER3 ADC. It's the first-in-class antibody drug conjugate that targets HER3. Um, actually, it's quite similar to trastuzumab derixtecan. It actually has the same linker and the same uh, exotecan uh, topoisomerase 1 inhibitor payload. Um, but of course, the targeted part of it is not a HER2 antibody, but it is a HER3 antibody. So it has been looked at in several studies, and the first study where this drug was evaluated was a dose escalation study that focused on patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer after progression on EGFR TKI and after platinum-based chemotherapy. So you can see here on the slide the schema. Um, patients were uh, given escalating doses of HER3-DXT. 
Um, and a number of patients, 57, were, were uh, treated in the dose escalation portion. This is a, 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 something that's familiar to most, a waterfall plot looking at disease shrinkage with petrotimab darixtecan. You can see here that in this EGFR mutant lung cancer uh, population after chemotherapy, after EGFR-TKI, the overall response rate was 39%. The median PFS was 8.2 months. And so these are you know, re quite reasonable efficacy, especially mm -hmm. in the heavily pretreated setting. And then what I think is especially interesting, it might be hard to see, but on the bottom of the slide, you can see that patients had different mechanisms of resistance to EGFR TKIs, including uh, BRAF alteration, C797, MET amplification, and this did seem to transcend uh, those uh, mechanisms of resistance and really was active in a variety of different cancers, which I think holds a lot of promise when uh, resistance mechanisms are so heterogeneous. So what happens uh, with that case of yours? Yeah, so our patient uh, continued the osimertinib. Um, we tried to reattempt some dose escalation, but we were unable to. She held on and had stable disease, but then was really found to have systemic progression, um, including disease in the abdomen. And so we transitioned her to uh, chemotherapy with carboplatin and pemetrexid. Uh, she had a um, short response to treatment and then had further disease progression. And that's when we sent her down um, for clinical trial enrollment. Great. Um, and so she actually did enroll in that study that we just mentioned, the phase one study of petrotimab darixtecan. Um, she enrolled uh, late in 2020. Um, she actually did really well. Um, one of the common side effects, remember this is chemotherapy, so we do see some cytopenias. Um, she did briefly have some grade three cytopenia early on in her, her treatment course, um, was, had a brief interruption and then resumed uh, with a dose reduction with good tolerability. Speaking of the toxicity profile, you can see here on this slide that really the safety profile was indicated that this drug was tolerable and manageable. Um, as I mentioned, we do see some of those cytopenias, so thrombocytopenia and neutropenia. They actually are kind of enhanced maybe early on in the treatment and then actually kind of resolve as, as treatment goes on. Um, there is some fatigue and nausea, um, which, uh, you know, again, this is sort of chemotherapy related. Um, and then I think what is always of interest for these um, ADCs and targeted therapies in general is thinking about pneumonitis. Mm -hmm. um, and so the adjudicated ILD frequency on the phase one study was 6%. How does this compare to some of the other ADCs that you worked with? Have you ever seen pneumonitis? Uh, I have not seen it, but it, there's a lot of talk about pneumonitis um, with trastuzumab, Derextecan, um, with um, breast cancer mm -hmm. and lung um, cancer usage, and, and it seems to be dose-related. Re um, uh, but certainly we have become more familiar with some of these uh, pneumonitises and interstitial lung disease with some of our targeted agents. And I think what's particularly challenging in lung cancer is that patients always or often have shortness of breath or cough, and so trying to tease out what exactly is disease, what may be infection, what might be inflammation or pneumonitis becomes more challenging. But I do think that in this lung cancer population, although of course ILD exists, it does seem to be at a lower frequency than, than they have been seeing in breast cancer or sometimes with other ADCs. So speaking of breast cancer, this drug, petrotimab has been studied in breast cancer. 
So here you, on the slide you can see uh, that patrituzumab durexdecan in uh, patients with advanced breast cancer. And they did look at HER3 expression, but as you can see here, that the response rates uh, were fairly substantial despite HER2 expression, I think. Um, and we see uh, similarly that uh, the side effects seem to be in line with uh, chemotherapy-induced myelosuppression, um, but really um, fairly low rates of uh, ILD. I think that that's an important point to bring up. I think I, I failed to mention, but in the non-small cell lung cancer study, we did look at HER3 expression to see if that was a biomarker that tracked with disease. Um, and actually all patients on the study, or all cancers, um, did express HER3. And we didn't really see a clear correlation between HER3 expression um, and response to treatment. So I think in this instance, the biomarker really is an enriched population, which is EGFR mutant lung cancer, um, and it does seem to be active in a significant number of patients uh, with that type of cancer. In terms of future directions, uh, there are a lot of ongoing studies with petrotumab derixtecan and other ADCs as well. Um, the ones that are most interesting or intriguing, um, I think, are the large uh, phase two study um, that potentially might lead to approval of petrotumab derixtecan, which actually is has completed accrual and we're waiting for results there. There is a study in the second line setting um, that's randomizing petrotumab derixtecan to chemotherapy, and this is after mm -hmm. first line EGFR-TKI. Mm -hmm. And then I'm very interested about uh, the results from the osimertinib plus HER3-DXD uh, study, where patients are on osimertinib, progress, and then they, uh, they, they get the HER3-DXD added in. I think this brings sort of us to an interesting kind of end point where we talk about, you know, where do you see this drug fitting in into our treatment um, sequencing for EGFR mutant lung cancer should it get approved? Well, I think that the longer we can stay on uh, a more targeted um, approach, it may not be targeted therapy, but an antibody drug conjugate makes a lot of sense to mm -hmm. me that we would um, use that. It is chemotherapy um, as the cytotoxic agent, and I think it makes sense that it would be in the second line setting or after progression if patients have received upfront chemotherapy with carboplatin, pemetrexid. I totally agree. I think that there are a lot of studies that we're awaiting results for, and so I think there's going to be a lot of moving parts. Um, I'm interested to see if the FLORA2 study combining mm -hmm. chemotherapy and osimertinib um, is positive, because if we use both of those in the first-line setting, I can certainly see something like HER3-DXD fitting quite nicely in the second-line setting. And then I'd like to see those results with combination with osimertinib, because I think there could be value with continuing um, the targeted therapy that blocks the driver mutation, but adding in an ADC in that setting. Great. So I think in terms of practice pearls that um, we went over hopefully today, um, HER3 is overexpressed across a range of different cancer types and boosts the oncogenic activity of other HER receptors. Um, HER3 overexpression is linked to poor prognosis and, and linked to treatment resistance in numerous types of anti-cancer therapy. Uh, one HER3-targeted ADC, petritumab derixtecan, has really demonstrated promising efficacy and safety in patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer uh, after progression on EGFR inhibitors, and there's some early data showing promise in metastatic breast cancer as well. Overall, petritumab derixtecan has a tolerable and manageable side effect profile. 
Um, and we're really excited to see these current and future trials read out that will help us elucidate the precise role in therapy uh, or in sequencing um, this drug may have a place uh, in for non-small cell lung cancer and breast cancer patients. Well, thank you, Mackenzie. Um, it was a pleasure to talk to you about this really interesting uh, topic. Absolutely. And I want to thank the viewers for joining us today as well. I hope that the things that we talked about prove useful in your clinical practice. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Novus Medical Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.